We're talking tonight about forgiveness as we continue our uh, study through our one-word book, and in particular, when we say forgiveness, we're talking about how we need to cultivate forgiveness and how we need to exhibit it in our own lives as a character trait. Now, we know that all traits that we need to demonstrate are fundamentally rooted in God. That is, we're reflecting God's nature. And of course, with that said, we've already talked about the fact that God extends his grace towards us. We talked about that as one of the big words that we looked at in those first few weeks. And then in this unit where we've been looking at the characteristics we want to try to exhibit, we've already talked about the mercy that we need to try to show to others. And so with all of that said, that means that we've already looked at some words that have a, a pretty good amount of overlap with the word forgiveness. And beyond that, our Sunday morning Bible class is all about forgiveness right now. In fact, if you were there this morning, see, I knew I was going to have that problem. This thing is just not wanting to stay on tonight. If you were there this morning, we had an in-depth word study of all of the New Testament terms related to forgiveness. And that's building upon the fact that just a few weeks ago, we looked at all the Old Testament terms related to forgiveness. And if you weren't there, well, I told you it was an important class. You should be there. So I'm not going to, you know, that's, that's on you. <laughs> With all of that said, what I, what I mean is I don't want to just rehash ground that we've already walked over in our lessons tonight, and I certainly don't want to just regurgitate what we talked about this morning in Bible class, especially since we're going to be building on this idea of forgiveness in our Sunday morning class here for several more weeks. So keeping in mind that this is about building Christian character, how we need to demonstrate forgiveness. I want us to have a practical lesson tonight. We're going to take a little bit different tack, and instead of a word study like we typically do, I want us to do a, a character study from Scripture, one who was mentioned in the reading, actually, that we did this week on one of the days. Let's look at someone who was shown forgiveness in his life and the power that forgiveness had on him. We want to explore that. Let's talk about Mark, John Mark, and see the difference that forgiveness made for him and what sorts of practical lessons we can take from that in demonstrating forgiveness ourselves. So let's talk a bit about Mark's background. Uh, Mark is the son of a woman named Mary. We read that in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. There's no mention made of Mark's father, so that indicates to us that probably Mary was a woman of some wealth, some prominence, because she's mentioned there alone. But not only that, she's mentioned because the church meets there in her house in Acts chapter 12, which again demonstrates her prominence. Some have speculated that Mary's house was maybe the house in which Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper. And if that's the case, then it could be that Mark was sort of there listening in on the things that were said, and he followed Jesus and the disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The reason for that speculation is because whether that part is true or not, at any rate, Mark has traditionally been identified with the otherwise anonymous young man mentioned in his gospel in Mark chapter 14. If you remember this story, there's a young man who's unnamed. He's a bystander seeing everything going on in the garden, and they try to seize him, and he runs away and leaves his uh, coat there behind him. By tradition, that's said to be Mark, and maybe the Last Supper was eaten in his mother's house, and that's how he wound up there. At any rate, many years after this now, when we come to Acts chapter 12, a a prayer meeting occurs in Mary's house. Herod Agrippa has just killed the Apostle James, the brother of John. And after he does that, he decides to seize Simon Peter. Peter, you know, is the ringleader of the apostles. And he's seen that uh, killing James curried favor with the Jewish leaders. And so he decides to take an even bolder step. He's going to go after Peter himself. And his plan is ultimately to try him publicly to execute him. But the Passover interferes with all that. He has to wait until Passover is done with to finish up his plans. And in the meantime... Peter's held in custody with all of these squads of soldiers watching him there, chained to him round the clock. And if you remember what happens, an angel comes and breaks Peter out of prison in the middle of the night. But in the meantime, the disciples are meeting at John Mark's mother's house. They're praying to God on Peter's behalf. And suddenly there's a knock on the door. And the servant girl Rhoda goes to answer it, and it's Peter. And there's this you know, humorous note there where she's so excited, she runs back to tell everybody else, hey, Peter's out there without opening the door and letting him in. He's just cooling his heels out there on the street. But eventually he gets in there, and this shows us just how important Mark and Mary, for that matter, how important they were among the disciples. The church was meeting there in their house, and it shows us that Mark had a, a personal acquaintance here with Peter. We're going to see Peter pop up again in his life a little bit later. Mark has a close personal connection to one other important figure in the early church, and that's Barnabas. Barnabas was his cousin. And you remember, Barnabas was not only a leader, but Barnabas was an associate of Paul on his first missionary journey. And so you get to the end of chapter 12, And Mark joins with them there when they go to Antioch. And then when, in the beginning of chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the church in Antioch to go out on this first missionary journey, uh, down in verse number 5, John, or Mark, John Mark, uh, goes and assists them. And he goes with them uh, as far as Perga and Pamphylia in the southern coast of Asia Minor. And then, for whatever reason, Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, it says that he left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark heads back home. Now, we don't know why he went back home. The text doesn't tell us. Some have speculated here that maybe he wasn't totally on board with the Gentile mission. You know, at this point, there's still some controversy surrounding that, and he has those ties to Peter, to the church in Jerusalem. Maybe he's from that hardline group that isn't completely on board with this. I don't know about that. In my opinion, that's reading a little bit too much into things here. I tend to think that for whatever reason, the young man just got homesick. 
Maybe he started thinking about his comfortable bed back in Jerusalem. Maybe he started missing those hot home-cooked meals that he had back in his mama's house. Maybe his early zeal for this adventure had worn off and he'd started to become dissatisfied with the whole thing. Who knows, they'd sailed from Cyprus. Maybe John Mark had become seasick on the way. Maybe he'd contracted malaria. There's a lot of insects in that region. Maybe as they got to the coast and knowing what awaited them as they were going into Galatia, maybe he saw the Taurus Mountains looming up in front of him on the plateau there of Asia Minor, and he'd heard the rumors about these brigands, robber tribes that inhabited the area, and he decided that he just didn't want to have to face that. You know, we're getting to the beginning of Paul's journeys. He writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says he was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul is at the outset of that history that he talks about there. And if you read through the first missionary journey, what happens to him, he's run out of one town after another. Ultimately, it's that first one that he's stoned and left for dead there at Lystra. So it could be as simple as John Mark had an inkling of what was coming, and he decided he wasn't ready for that. And so he left it for Paul and Barnabas, and he decided to go back home. He took the next ship back bound for Palestine. Now, in any case, that doesn't deter Paul and Barnabas. They continue on their mission. They complete it successfully. After they're finished, they go down to Jerusalem and they give their report. And you remember, this is chapter 15. There's ultimately, in the aftermath of that, this conference. What do we do now about all these Gentiles coming into the church because of Paul and Barnabas' work? Uh, How do we deal with them? But then after that, Paul and Barnabas decide that they're going to go out on a second trip. Their intention is to go and visit again all of those churches that they planted the first time. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with him. But Paul was adamantly against that idea. And we read it in chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with him to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Whatever the reasons that... Mark thought justified his departure. Paul evidently viewed it as a desertion, and he didn't think that there was any good reason for it. In fact, it seems that he thought this was evidence of some sort of defect of character in Mark, and he didn't want to take him with him again for that reason. And knowing Paul, he probably had good reason for his doubts. I mean, this is a practical way to look at it, isn't it? Can we really trust this guy? Can we count on this guy? Things are going to be tough. We don't want him with us, weighing us down. On the other hand, Barnabas likely saw some good qualities in this young man that he thought he could nurture and he could develop. Barnabas is living up to his name here. You remember what Barnabas means, the son of encouragement. Well, he's living that out here. 
He was the one, if you remember, to stick up for Paul when he was known as Saul, when nobody else would. He gave him a chance when everyone else was afraid of him. And so he's likely thinking that, well, maybe it'd be good for Mark to, to work and to, to study under him for a while. And this is serious disagreement. And the reason that it's so serious and so sharp is because this isn't doctrine at stake. It's not a, a question of one man being right and the other, one, other man being wrong. They're both right, in a sense, aren't they? I mean, they both have a point in the way that they're looking at this. I can imagine that Paul would probably be a pretty intimidating fellow to work with. Now, Paul, to his credit, would never ask anyone to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. But the problem is, Paul is willing to do things that are almost superhuman. It's hard for us to, to visualize ourselves doing the things that Paul was capable of doing. And sometimes in people like that, I, I don't know for sure, you were speculating here about Paul, but, but maybe he found it difficult to tolerate weaknesses in others because he didn't have those same sorts of weaknesses, being so zealous. I don't know if that's the case or not. At any rate, Paul definitely would see it from the point of view of, I don't need a man like that by my side. Whether he could sympathize with him or not is in some sense beside the point because Paul had a job to do and he didn't think Mark was going to help him do it. But Barnabas also has a point. He'd given Paul a chance when everybody had written him off. Doesn't Mark deserve a second chance too? Isn't that what the gospel is all about, really? Paul's going around preaching and teaching about grace. Well, here we need to extend that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness to John Mark. And so they decide to go their separate ways. It's an ugly sort of scene here, this disagreement. And this is the last that we see or hear anything about Mark for quite some time. And at this point, he's a failure. He's a man who's failed about as miserably as a person can fail. You know, people will forgive just about any sort of weakness or imperfection that you show. But there's some exceptions to that. And it looks at this point like Mark is a coward. And that's one of those things that people have a hard time forgiving. Certainly they have a hard time forgetting it. And that's essentially the charge against Mark. Here's Paul, courageous, bold, steadfast. Mark's not fit to go with him. That's an ugly look. And if that were the last thing that we knew about Mark, well, we wouldn't be having a lesson about him tonight because he wouldn't be worth any more of our attention here. But Barnabas evidently was a positive role model for him. He took Mark under his wing, and evidently with Barnabas as a mentor, he grew up, he matured, he developed. And more importantly than that, that conflict between Paul and Mark was eventually healed. Just about a decade after this, Paul writes to the church in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 10, and he says that they need to receive Mark. When he writes his letter to Philemon in verse number 24, he calls Mark his fellow worker. But the most personal and the most powerful mention he makes of him is in his last letter from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
Second Timothy, you remember, is written not long before Paul's death. He's languishing here in a Roman prison, and it's cold, winter's coming, it's damp. He was arrested quite suddenly, and he writes to his friend and his son in the gospel, Timothy, in Ephesus, and he urges him to come as soon as he can. He asks him to bring his cloak, because he left hurriedly without it to bring the books and to bring the parchments. He wants him to hurry up and come before winter because the Mediterranean would be closed and he wouldn't be able to navigate it then. There are all these sad personal notes in 2 Timothy. He says that uh, Demas, his one-time associate, he's forsaken him. He loved this world too much. He mentions a couple of other co-workers who are scattered in other places doing important missions. He says that only Luke is with him. So he wants Timothy to come. And Paul adds one more request, one more friend that he wants Timothy to bring with him. And you think about all of the associates that we know from Paul's life, and there are a lot of people he could have asked for. There's Onesimus who ministered to him there in that Roman prison. There's Silas who was his traveling companion on the second and the third missionary journeys, the one that he uh, selected after he and Barnabas went their separate ways. There's Priscilla and Aquila who worked side by side with him in Corinth and who we find him encountering on other occasions. Paul could have asked for any of these or or others. But 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I want Mark who left me at Perga to go and to climb the mountains alone. I want Mark, the quitter. I want Mark, the coward. I want Mark, who was the cause of that separation between me and Barnabas. Bring Mark, Paul says, because he's useful to me for ministry. We mentioned earlier also Mark's association with Peter. And we find Mark associated with Peter again toward the end of Peter's life. Mark evidently became a traveling companion and a co-worker, a minister with Peter too. He's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, a letter that was probably written just shortly after Paul was executed in Rome. And he's talked about there as if he's a a co-sender of the letter. He's sending greetings. And it's most likely during this period that Mark wrote his gospel. Mark's gospel, by tradition, is said to be essentially the memoirs of Peter. That is, Peter told him these stories, and Mark, through the Holy Spirit, uh, wrote them down and left them for us. So Mark's faithful finish, you look at this rehabilitation here, this is an encouragement to everyone who stumbles and falls along the way. His authorship of the gospels, if nothing else, is proof of that faithful finish. And the question we need to ask is, what is it that made that difference in Mark's life? What caused him to go from that low point of failing about as badly as a person can to being someone who's useful to Paul for ministry, who's a co-worker with Peter, who's the author of a gospel? It's forgiveness. Forgiveness is what made the difference for Mark. The forgiveness of Barnabas? despite him leaving on that first missionary journey, abandoning them to see that potential in him and to decide to to take him and to mold him and to try to shape him into something that could be useful through the Lord. 
ultimately then the forgiveness of Paul to be reconciled to him despite their differences. Maybe for Paul even to admit that he'd been a bit hasty. He'd made a mistake. He'd misjudged Mark. And I think when we look at this story, there are a couple of lessons here for us. For one thing, we need to be people who are eager to forgive. We need to be people who always look for the best in others rather than the worst. People who try to see the potential in others. You know, Paul and Barnabas had their argument. Mark goes away and Paul doesn't want to take him on the trip then. Barnabas, though, saw the potential. He looked for the best. Barnabas wanted to take him. Barnabas wanted to try to help him. And in time, Mark proved Barnabas right, essentially, that, that Paul was wrong. He became this trusted co-worker even in Paul's eyes. And see, the point is, when you make this sort of investment in someone, a spiritual investment, you never know what sort of return you're going to have on that. You never know what effect you may have on someone when you extend forgiveness to them. So always look for the best in people. Always be willing to forgive them the way that Barnabas forgave and saw the best in John Mark. But we also have to be willing, secondly, to forgive ourselves. That's sometimes the hardest thing. In fact, I was talking with someone just this morning after Bible class about that, and they said that uh, they know that God forgives them. We talked about forgiveness in class, but the thing they have trouble dealing with is forgiving themselves. Well, there are a lot of people who've had beginnings like Mark, if we can think of it that way, in their walk with Christ. But in spite of that, they've gone on to make significant contributions to the cause of Christ. Have you experienced failure in your Christian walk? Answer that's yes. <laughs> I know that we all have. Some of us more than others. Some of us more often than others or of a greater magnitude than others. But learn from your mistake. Don't allow it to continue to defeat you. Get up, dust yourself off, try again. Don't allow that defeat to keep you from serving, but you have to be willing to forgive yourself, realizing that God forgives you. Ask him for the courage, for the strength to get up and to keep on going. It's not how well you start, but how well you finish. So we have to be willing not only to forgive others, we have to be willing to forgive ourselves. Of course, the most wonderful part of this story is the grace of God the love of God, the forgiveness of God, because that is what ultimately brought Mark back from his failure and from his sin and from his shame and made him useful for God. All of us at times are conscious of our weaknesses and our imperfections. Every one of us has failed ourselves. We've failed our family members, we failed our church family. All of us have failed God. We failed to give him the best that we can. But we can look at the story of Mark and we can take heart again. We may have been unprofitable, but we can be profitable. We may have failed, 
but through God we can be victorious. We can receive his forgiveness. So I want to encourage all of us, let's be people who cultivate forgiveness. Let's be eager to forgive others. Let's be ready and willing to forgive ourselves. And all that's rooted in the fact, the confidence that we have that God can and will and has forgiven us. Now, maybe you're here this evening and there's some sin in your life that you need to repent of in a public way. You need to ask for that forgiveness, perhaps from your brothers and sisters who are here, perhaps from the Lord. And if there are changes you need to make in your life this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say,